Konnichiwa. This is Erica. Hey everyone, this is Freen, and we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. You're listening to Super Smash House. Today, we're joined by our guest, Professor Nakano, who's a professor at Sofia University um, of political, uh, teaching political science and who's also an activist. And we're very, very excited. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to tell us what we're going to be talking about today? Right. So uh, we'll be focusing on the uh, Japanese constitution, mm. uh, the controversy around it, particularly what's called Article 9, mm-hmm. which is also known as the pacifist uh, article. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the uh, current government's attempt to change it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also an election for the um, upper house yeah. of right. the Japanese uh, assembly uh, just July. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. need to talk about that. Too. Right. Yes. So let's start at the beginning. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where Article 9 came from, why Japan has this, and what, what it's all about? Right. So uh, the Japanese constitution, uh, like any constitution in the world, has a lot to do with the historical background. And in the Japanese case, it's really coming out of the end of the Second World War. Uh, I mean, to say it's the end of the Second World War is actually already a mild way of putting it, mm-hmm. because uh, during Second World War, Japan invaded the Asian continent and also uh, fought uh, throughout the uh, Asia-Pacific theaters and um, with uh, devastating consequences. So after Japan surrendered, uh, accepting the Potsdam Declaration mm-hmm. imposed by the Allied powers, um, the uh, American occupation began. And it's in the context of the American occupation that the new constitution was drafted and then adopted. And um, so that is the sort of specific background in which mm-hmm. the post-war constitution came to into place. So um, in terms of Article 9 specifically, uh, I don't know, I think Erica might have some information on this, but mm-hmm. what what is Article 9 and what does it say exactly? Right, so I'm just going to clearly define it just because there are a lot of interpretations oh, of, of the article. So it's under Chapter 2 of the Constitution and renounces the war. And the Constitution came into effect from 1947, and it states, um, Aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as means of settling international disputes. And it also says, In order to accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other potential war potential will never be maintained, the right of belligerency of the state will not be recognized. So that is Article 9. And so it basically, from my understanding, it's saying that Japan can only attack another country if Japan's um, attacked, right? Right. And, um, well, what is interesting and unique is really that um, it categorically sort of bans Mm -hmm. war as a mean of resolving international dispute. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you sort of take a straight interpretation, kind of literal interpretation mm-hmm. of the Article 9, it does sound that Japan is not going to fight fight mm-hmm. any war whatsoever. Right. Um, and only try to resolve international disputes of all kinds through diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second paragraph of Article 9, as Erika just read, uh, also sort of bans war potential. So Japan mm-hmm. is not going to have any military capacity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So if you stick to a very literal interpretation of the constitution, it's very, very radical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no war whatsoever and no military. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, you know, there's always been this criticism that that's kind of unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Sounds nice, but impossible to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. what is interesting is that um, uh, the Americans who drafted the constitution, not all of it, but, you know, the main part, uh, soon also came to regret what uh, it sort of required Japan to accept. Mm-hmm. And so there's been sort of backtracking right. uh, soon after uh, the constitution uh, was implemented. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for a long time already, um, the sort of strictest 
literal interpretation of the constitution has not really been adopted. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Japan has, uh, it doesn't call war potential, but, you know, force. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, it's called the uh, self-defense force, mm-hmm. SDF. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be a military. It's focusing on just defense. Right. Right. And um, um, it has also long claimed, the Japanese government has also long claimed that Japan can defend itself, mm. but under very strict conditions. Right. And uh, so, you know, the uh, there is actually a range in which one can interpret Article 9. Mm-hmm. And more recently, since 2015, uh, the current Abe government uh, of Prime Minister Abe Shinzo um, has expanded further the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Uh, Japan is supposedly able to do even more. Right. And uh, so some people question whether Article 9 is still kind of valid. Right. Uh, and, uh, or maybe the reality has really changed so much mm-hmm. from what Article 9 seems to suggest, that either you need to change the reality or you need to change Article 9. And that's sort of the background of the... You know, current mm-hmm. debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, if I can sort of, you know, um, backpedal a little bit, mm-hmm. a historical context, because, um, you know, the question is why, you know, Article 9 came to, into place in the, in the first mm-hmm. place, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's not um, an everyday uh, stipulation yeah. in any constitution. Um, and um, so it, it is indeed unique. And uh, the way that I look at it is really... Uh, to do with the war experience, mm-hmm. you know, so Japan was taken over by the militarists in the 1930s mm-hmm. and um, invaded uh, uh, into the uh, Asian continent. Uh, you already had Taiwan annexed mm-hmm. and also um, Korean Peninsula annexed well before that. Mm-hmm. But in the 1930s, it started to expand further into what's called Manchuria, mm-hmm. right? So well, that's northeast China, mm-hmm. and went on further south, you know, sort of attacking cities like Shanghai, and mm-hmm. eventually in the Second World War, going into the Philippines, in Singapore, and Burma, even, mm-hmm. and so, uh, and of course into the Pacific Islands as well, mm-hmm. and uh, of course in the case of the fight against the United States, the uh, surprise attack on Pearl Harbor Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is also very famous. So um, uh, Japan, sort of, you know, uh, the fact that it was taken over by the militarists led to uh, devastating consequences. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, you you have uh, heard and learned about some of the atrocities committed Mm -hmm. by the Japanese military or the uh, even ongoing controversy over the... uh, uh, what's called the comfort woman system, mm-hmm. also known as sex slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these uh, gross human rights abuses and war crimes uh, led to, I guess, the Allied powers' um, sort of determination mm-hmm. that the military of any kind needs to be banned mm-hmm. if Japan is to have a, you know, um, um, a second start mm-hmm. after the Second World War. Right. And, um, yeah. How would you respond... Um, to one of the critiques being that Article 9 robs Japan of its sovereignty. Um, I have a quote here by Kishinobusuke. I don't know if I'm saying right. that right. Yeah. And it says, uh, not the policy of an independent nation to have troops of a foreign nation based on its soil um, and to not have any form of defending itself. Right. And, uh, well, Kishinobusuke, by the mm-hmm. way, is... Um, Abe's grandfather. Grandfather. Exactly. And yeah. Manchur- I was going to laugh. I thought yeah. maybe you, you could do a... Be- <laughs> yeah, that you had a better way of right. getting so he was Kishin- the leader of the um, occupation of Manchuria. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. And uh, the grandfather of the current prime minister, mm-hmm. who very much idolizes right. yeah. Kishi. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of an interesting criticism, and I think um, it has a certain valid point, although I do think we need to qualify it. I mean, Japan is not, by any means, the only country that mm-hmm. has U.S. bases. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, you know, it's sort Many of... Many countries. The U.S. is very, very unique mm-hmm. and uh, um, peculiar in having bases all over the world. Right. right. So many other European countries have U.S. bases as well. Right. And uh, they are really all over the world, so... 
uh, in that sense, you know, leaving aside the question whether that's desirable or morally right, mm-hmm. um, that's, you know, uh, that's what it is. Right. Uh, and um, what is interesting is also that, um, um, yes, so, you know, you can say that Japan has continued to sort of uh, lack or it has lost sovereignty partially mm-hmm. by not being able to have uh, a military force. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, actually, um, I often raise this issue about uh, sort of Germany, mm-hmm. right? Because Germany is another country mm-hmm. uh, that has, uh, of course, a very bad reputation mm-hmm. for what he has done during World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, the Nazi mm-hmm. uh, taking over Germany and uh, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole devastation of the European continent and beyond. And uh, Germany was also occupied, mm-hmm. uh, not just by the US, but by four yeah. allied powers, including the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so the contrast or the comparison between Germany and Japan is also yeah, it's interesting. very interesting, yes. yeah, because they have a very well, weak well, military currently compared to other, other European nations. Right. And I think other... Like international organizations are encouraging Germany to kind of um, increase their military spending as well and um, their strength as well. And I think it's really interesting to see how different the attitudes of the two governments are because whereas Japan's very, you know, the current Mm administration is very, very nationalistic, revisionist, and Germany is quite the opposite from Japan. Right. Yeah. No, that's that's very interesting. And... um, you know, so in terms of the attitude to the war experience mm-hmm. and to also learning a lesson from, you know, the uh, the past, mm-hmm. um, there's, um, you know, real grounds for comparison between Japan and Germany. Mm-hmm. But one thing that is sort of interesting is that, as Erica said, I think Germany's uh, postal culture mm-hmm. is uh, very liberal mm-hmm. and also uh, leaning towards internationalism mm-hmm. and also... Uh, also a pacifist attitude. Right. Uh, but one interesting difference, uh, perhaps even sort of surprising difference between Japan and Germany is that Germany doesn't have an article night. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So yeah, they have a even, military. Yeah, it has a military. And mm-hmm. it's also a member of the uh, NATO. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, it has sent troops overseas. Mm-hmm. Although, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, um, the po- popular sentiment in Germany is very strongly anti-war. Mm-hmm. And so there's always a lot of convincing that any government that wants to send German troops a- abroad mm-hmm. have to sort of engage with the public opinion. Right. Uh, and uh, so some people say actually that, you know, look, Germany has a military. Why can't Japan also? Right. Right. And uh, it sounds a bit convincing, but actually, you know, I think there is a difference here too. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think that necessarily means that Germany has fuller sovereignty than Japan mm-hmm. be, just because it has a military because um, it actually bans something that is not banned in Japan and actually that is uh, Nazism mm-hmm. uh, as you may know Nazism yeah. is banned in Germany even yeah. today right? yeah so, you can do Heil Hitler <laughs> exactly as well, yeah. and you can sell yeah. uh, Mein Kampf mm-hmm. right? the um, book written mm-hmm. by Hitler yeah. even today so actually in terms of free speech Mm-hmm. It's a it's a real constraint. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Even on social media, I think like on Twitter, um, one or two years ago, they started um, regulating, yeah. controlling people's opinions right. as well. Yeah. So um, that's interesting because uh, free speech is a very important right, mm-hmm. and uh, even in terms of restricting and banning hate speech, there's real debate, right? right. Because mm-hmm. none of us like hate speech. And uh, some of us think it should be banned. But, of course, where to draw the line, mm-hmm. you know, and um, even hate speech is a form of speech. Therefore, mm-hmm. it's not something that is to be sort of uh, shut down casually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a serious decision. Right. But Germany to date, because of the lesson that they learned from the Nazi past, they decided never again. Mm-hmm. So we're going to ban Nazism. Mm-hmm. Right. And... Uh, so, in that sense, Germans' loss of part of sovereign rights mm-hmm. is actually also quite serious. Right. But in the Japanese case, uh, Nazism, historical revisionism, none of that is banned. 
Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, so I think there's a difference there. So Germany in the pre-war period caused devastation because it was taken over by Nazism. And that's why they banned Nazism. Mm-hmm. In the Japanese case, Japan caused devastation because of the military's takeover. Mm-hmm. And that's why military is banned. Mm-hmm. So in that right. sense, there's a parallel there. Right. And neither of the two countries are fully sovereign. On that point, um, so I, I another quote here. I love quotes. Sorry, guys. Um, Somebody has to do it. I have like ten quotes for this episode. It's good. Go ahead. Um, and and off the quote, a question for you. So the quote goes: From the eighteen eighties through to the early nineteen forties, whether at times of war or peace, the military in Japan had been everywhere, permeating every element of modern culture, from the sciences to the arts, from the state to the individu- individual. By contrast, post-war Japan was a nation-state with a powerful military that remained largely invisible. Um, and you just made that comparison here, too, with Germany yeah. and, and Japan, that in one country the military is more visible and the military is less visible here in Japan. Um, but I was wondering what, how you play into this idea that the SDF is invisible in some ways mm-hmm. in Japanese society when... Um, militarism still, uh, to me as a foreigner, mm-hmm. seems very strong in Japanese mm-hmm. attitudes. Mm-hmm. Things like kids who go to school, the mm-hmm. outfits they wear, yeah, or yeah, the yeah, way they sure. walk down Beautiful. the street. Yeah. Yeah. I, in a way, I feel like that military mentality is still, there, yeah. is still existing. So you just said, right, you, you can't be a Nazi in Germany. Mm-hmm. But to an extent, it seems mm-hmm. that militarism still mm-hmm. is in every aspect. I don't know. Am I correct in that? I definitely think so, too. Personally, like having gone to, you know, having received Japanese education, I feel like, you know, they tell you to clean at lunchtime. I'm not saying it's bad. <laughs> Everything's bad. But, yeah, it's very, like, militaristic. We're learning way. how to march. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, does, that, does that influence kind of this attitude of it, it's still in society, whereas Nazism just is not part of is not part of German society. Right. So, Would you say uh, it's still been surf bubbling in this background? In Japan, um, I think there is a big taboo about the military per se and the idea of Japan getting involved in war. Mm-hmm. So I do think that pacifism uh, is a strong sentiment in Japan and quite pervasive. But that's not the same as saying that, you know, in terms of culture, mm-hmm. in terms of conventions you know, practices or insti- institutions even, uh, Japan hasn't quite eradicated right. what was sort of left over from the pre-war mm-hmm. period. So, yeah, like Erica, I mean, I went through the Japanese school system years ago, and, uh, yeah, it's like the military. Yeah. <laughs> wear the uniform, you know, where you feel strangled. <laughs> it's like a military uniform. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, the first thing you learn, I mean, you really spend so much time exercising how to behave yourself in a ceremony. Yeah. That's kind of a very militaristic, very regimented education. And so these social institutions did not end with the war. Right. And uh, I think that's sort of the reality of Japan. Whereas, uh, and where does the difference come from? I mean, it's actually a complex question. But uh, uh, one thing that we need to say, I think, is uh, that... um, Japan, once it became independent in 1952, mm-hmm. so the U.S. occupation ended, then there was a lot of things that was reversed. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, compa- in compared to the persecution of the Nazis in, the, in Germany, which mm-hmm. continued on mm-hmm. for years I- into the 1980s and onwards even, right? mm-hmm. and even today we hear about certain firms Mm-hmm. You know, being revealed to have had used forced labor under Nazism and having to agreeing to compensate. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Japanese case, once the American occupation was over, uh, a lot of people who were war criminals at one point uh, were let off. And uh, that included uh, Kishinobusuke that you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, who ended up becoming the prime minister of Japan between 1958 and 1960. Right, mm-hmm. so uh, the uh, coming back of war-related um, figures at all levels of the Japanese society was actually uh, putting a break on Japan, continued to face up to its past and trying to change in the post-war. So that's why you see the legacies of militarism of the past still sort of being pervasive right. uh, socially, I guess. 
Right. So talking about um, how the military um, still kind of culture still prevails in Japan, going back to the self-defense force. So I think a lot of people, maybe not everyone knows, but so the self-defense force is ranked as the world's fourth most powerful military and conventional capabilities mm-hmm. in a Credit Suisse, Swiss, mm-hmm. the Swiss multinational investment bank rated it um, in 2015, and also it has the world's eighth largest military budget, so a lot of people say, you know, even though Japan has a quote-unquote self-defense force, it's a military, they they have very strong capabilities, Um, but... What do you think about, mm. yeah, like, what, what people yeah, think no, about Yeah, no, I think that's um, interesting, right, because uh, mm-hmm. Japan is not supposed to have a military, but as, as you just said, mm-hmm. uh, Japan's self-defense force troops in size and in capability uh, is comparable to the military of the United Kingdom, Britain, right. mm-hmm. which, uh, as we all know, yeah. uh, gets involved in all kinds of war right. alongside the United States. Um, so it has become quite substantial over time, and um, it's um, it's not um, something that is uh, minimal anymore. Um, and uh, Japan does have its own capacity to defend itself, at least for a short while, right. even though it continues to be dependent and, to a large degree, also increasingly integrated into the U.S. forces as well. Uh, but uh, one thing, that, you know, traditionally, one thing that still made the Japanese self-defense force not a full-fledged military mm-hmm. was that, uh, you know, even today, uh, what Japan acquires in terms of weapons and aircrafts mm. and ships, they need to be defended. That they need to be argued that they are for on the defense. Right. So right. Japan is not supposed to have offensive yeah. capability. But they do, right? They do. Um, <laughs> no. So, yeah, on that note, uh, it was 1992 that legislation was passed um, allowing Japan to take part in UN peacekeeping missions, right? right. Um, So how has this... um, So I know that the... Sorry, I'm bumbling a little bit. I know that the participation of the SDF in peacekeeping missions was supposed to be under Chapter 6 of the UN Charter, which prohibited engagement in combat. Um, but there have been controversies around Japan's involvement in some of those. Hopefully mm-hmm. you can go into a bit more detail about sure. that. Sure. Um, and yeah, also, do you think that Japan's involvement in peacekeeping missions has, in a way, paved the way towards a, a resurgence of militarism? Um, right. So um, in 1992, when Japan passed a law enabling it to take part in peacekeeping operations... Uh, it was. Uh, some people thought that this is the most Japan can do. Right. And Japan cannot do any further. Mm-hmm. But this is, you know, the the very limit. While other people in politics were thinking the opposite, and they were thinking that this is what's going to open the gate. Right. That you know this is the starting point, and Japan can do more now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, in reality, I guess the latter view prevailed, mm-hmm. and Japan started to add to what it does mm-hmm. since 1992. When Japan initially started to take part in peacekeeping operations, as Farin said, it was under very strict conditions. Mm-hmm. So peace had to be there. Uh, there had to be seizure of combat. Mm-hmm. And Japanese self-defense force troops were not going to go there as military personnel, mm-hmm. but they're going to go there as police officers. Right. And they'll be able to carry guns, but they can shoot the gun only when they are being shot at. And so there were real strict conditions. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, PKO forces of Japan were digging and building rather than, you know, combat. And Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how it started. Mm -hmm. But over time, you know, uh, Japan still occasionally takes part in peacekeeping operations. Mm -hmm. The most recent that was highly controversial was in South Sudan, which was still Mm war-torn and not really, you can't argue that combat was over. Right. And so there was real danger. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe we're going to talk about this more later, but uh, as I alluded earlier on, there's been further reinterpretation of Article 9 mm-hmm. uh, in more recent years mm-hmm. yeah. with uh, the so-called security legislation that mm-hmm. was passed in 2015. Mm-hmm. Now Japan uh, can also um, 
exercise what's called collective self-defense, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, which is different from individual self-defense. Right. Individual self-defense is when Japan is attacked, then Japan can defend itself. Mm-hmm. Collective self-defense, Japan doesn't need to be attacked. Mm-hmm. It could be another country that's in war, like yeah. the United States. And if this other country asks Japan to take part, to help, that's called collective self-defense. So it's basically the right of a nation to get involved in other countries' war. Right. So not really self-defense, mm-hmm, even yeah. though it's called self-defense. It's just justifying it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, now Japan, officially, the government says we can do this too. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the restraints that existed on Japanese troops uh, overseas to get into combat has become uh, really pretty much removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, there is real fear that maybe soon Japan will be involved in a war. Right. It was this April, right, that the first non-UN um, peacekeeping mission was approved that Japan is allowed to be involved in? Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that was, a, was that a big deal here, or was it something that kind of slipped under the radar? Um, it's, well, yeah, no, that's the thing, right? I mean, it's a bit like Trump. Mm. <laughs> we live in an age where we uh, are increasingly led to get used to what's called a new normal. Mm. Right? I mean, when Trump came and he started to make outrageous comments, mm-hmm. we were all shocked and petrified. Mm-hmm. But the more he continues, uh, the more desensitized we right. become. And mm. we kind of shrug our shoulder and yeah. we say, that's horrible. Yeah, it gets normalized. Yeah, and uh, so there's a bit of that going on in Japan too. Maybe a bit more than a bit more, uh, a bit of that. So uh, I guess, you know, even though... Japan increasingly sort of, you know, uh, getting integrated to the U.S. uh, military strategy and um, no longer constrained under the framework of the U.N. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, you know, um, some people at least are getting used to it. Right. And I think a lot of people say that um, the, uh, the administration wanting to revise Article 9, there are a lot of other objectives that they're trying to kind of slide under art- the revision. Mm. Do you have, um, do yeah. you can say anything about right, that? Right, right. So, um, I mean, uh, what is interesting is that, you know, so Article 9 is a very unique, highly unusual article. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt about that. But uh, because it's so central to the Japanese post-war constitution, that if you weaken or basically sort of um, take away the substance of Article 9, uh, the whole constitution becomes harder to sustain mm. because so much is dependent on the presence of Article 9. Yeah, right. So let me give you an example. Okay. Um, Article 9 basically means that the Japanese constitution is not prepared for a war, mm. right? right? Because war is not supposed to happen. Yeah. So no place in the constitution it says who makes the decision to wage a war, who gets to end a war. Mm-hmm, right. You know, is that the parliament? Is that the cabinet? Right. Is that the prime minister? There's no reference whatsoever. There is also a clear ban right. on having any court martial, what's called a military court. Okay. Right. right? Because uh, if you're a soldier, you know you actually sort of legally kill people sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so the ordinary penal code doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. That's why in a country where there is a military, you also have court martial. Right, because we don't have that, so that infrastructure, so... Exactly. So in case, you know, uh, uh, a member of the Japanese self-defense force gets into a situation in which he kills somebody, mm-hmm. and that becomes perhaps legally questionable. Right. At the moment, you know, it looks like that person has to be tried in a normal court, which is completely inappropriate. Mm. Right? right. So right. the whole constitution, actually, you know, if you change Article 9, there's a lot you need to think about. That. Right. And that's not really being that's discussed really at all. There. And so um, yeah. the other thing that is sort of um, kind of creepy is, is that... Um, um, you know, removing Article 9 means that Japan can become a country that can get into a war. Mm-hmm. And that in itself requires a lot of things, right? So because, uh, like the media, for example, um, 
the Japanese media, as you probably know, doesn't really have all that much international affairs coverage. Right. Don't you think? I mean, it's very yeah. insular, mm -hmm. and so people don't really know about international Not affairs. Not at all, yeah. Right? yeah. So it's um, it kind of, you know, if the government says, oh, we're going to need to fight a war, we don't really have civil society organizations, we don't really have critical media mm -hmm. that put a break no, on it, yeah. and so... It's kind of scary, right? right. Because, uh, yes, the U.S., you know, the U.K., France, these countries get into wars all the time, mm. but they also have more vibrant civil society, mm -hmm. more critical media. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are certain breaks that are set up to challenge the government position and to probe whether the war is justified or, you know, but Japan doesn't have any of that. Mm -hmm. And um, the Abe government, in the process, passed what's known as the state secret secret law, mm -hmm. uh, which is um, similar which, to the Patriot Act law in the yeah, U.S. Yeah, and um, highly controversial also because it gives the government, including the bureaucrats, rather sweeping power to designate certain facts as state secret. Mm -hmm. And so, even journalists who are trying to investigate some wrongdoing uh, under the state. Uh, he or she may get arrested all of a sudden uh, if that person was going after what's designated as state secret. Right. And the scary thing is that that person will be tried in court still not knowing what was actually right. the problem because okay. state secret is state secret. Yeah. What is secret is secret. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to put yeah. it this way, mm -hmm. but that's what it is. Mm. Yeah. I also recently learned about Nipponkai, and I didn't actually know about them until um, a short time ago. And so to briefly explain it, it's a Japanese ultra-nationalist association. Uh, um, it was established in 1997, and the group, I, I heard that there's about 80% of um, the Abe administration is a part, a member of it. And it's quite scary because they have six official objectives, and one of them is... Uh, contributing to world peace by strengthening national security, and they're a strong advocate for um, the revision of Article Nine. And it's yeah, it's not necessarily a question, but I just I feel like not many people know about right. this association, right. and it's very scary. Yeah, no, the association is um, is sort of you know is like a network that brings people with similar views together. Mm -hmm. Who are in media, who are in politics, who are in government, who are in business, mm -hmm. and uh, ordinary people too, or religious groups, because mm -hmm. Japan also have a, a religious right. Right. And uh, so they coordinate their sort of uh, political objectives that mm -hmm. way. And uh, as Erica mentioned, you know, changing Article 9 of the Constitution in particular is a key goal. Mm -hmm. But uh, one thing that's probably interesting from you know, your point of view is that they also have very specific gender perspective. Right. You know, sort of, they put an emphasis on traditional gender roles. Okay. You know, so like men being manly and women, you know, being sort of obedient and, mm -hmm. you know, being more in the household. Mm -hmm. So they don't really believe in gender equality, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, they are also quite conservative and even reactionary on right. these issues as well. So they are, for example, opposed to the... Um, legalization of separate surnames for married right. couple. Yeah, that was an interesting point that was brought up in the past um, upper house election because I feel like that's not really even discussed in a lot of Western countries mm -hmm. that are quite a lot more liberal mm -hmm. than the Japanese government. Well, actually... Or what do you think? No, no, no <laughs> yeah. you're absolutely right yeah. because um, um, Japan is the only country in the world that specifically bans okay. you know, separate surnames for married couple. Yeah. So okay, it's, it's actually bad. unique. Okay, yeah. You know, it's um, other countries normally either don't really care right. or they don't actively ban it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just Japan, out of culture. Right. So, so when you are legally married in Japan, you have to legally choose right. the same surname, and well over ninety percent of the time, that will be the husband's, the right. man's mm -hmm. name. Right, and so oh, it can be the woman's too. It could be too. Hyphenated is not possible. Oh, yeah. Because only Japan, yeah, if yeah. one of the parents, I think, a foreign. But, but yeah, oh, but okay, you so can yeah. actually sort of um, make up a new name too if you want to. Oh, and I didn't people know that. don't normally do that. <laughs> yeah. So you know, well over ninety percent of the time, it's a man's name uh, that uh, is adopted, and um, of course, a lot of working women in particular suffer from that. Uh, they don't want to be 
you know, uh, having to, you know, give up their legal name uh, that they uh, have grown familiar to and they've become attached to, and uh, they would be uh, also um, having to give up uh, in the business context at times. And so um, it's, it's controversial, but the Abbey government is uh, not willing to go ahead with it. And uh, uh, Nippon Kaigi is one of the lobby groups that don't want that sort of thing to happen. Right. Um, so I'm going to go back to something you just said. You, you spoke about gender, which for yeah. people who are listening, you know that that's something that me and Eric are really interested in. Um, and on the topic of military, there's a lot of feminist scholarship about uh, masculine militarization mm-hmm. and military and masculinism. So for listeners who might not know about this, um, militarized masculinity kind of refers to this concept um, where the military creates and sustains uh, an idea of masculinity that is perpetuated not just within the military, not just for soldiers, but for all of men in society. So an example um, is that men have to be very physically strong, um, that men have to be protectors, that uh, violence is associated with masculinity, and no other organization drills um, gender roles so heavily into men as does the military. And so taking this as a starting point, this concept of militarized masculinity, uh, and then the concept that states are generally masculine, where does pacifism and gendering the state or gendering Japan's self-defense forces fall in line with this? Um, And can you, do you see this growing trend of militarization in Japan as also a growing trend to uh, militarize the nation? Right. Um, I think the um, the idea of remilitarizing Japan has, of course, a lot to do with um, you know the kind of gendered sort of debate that you, you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, it's not uncommon for people who want to revise the Constitution, Article Nine, and allow Japan to get fully remilitarized, uh, as saying that the current state of affairs. Uh, after you know the Second World War and with the what they call the imposition mm. of the post-war constraints on Japan, Japan has been emasculated. Right. Right. And so it's for time for Japan to rise again. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the language of remilitarization and the revision of the constitution very often sounds like you know reasserting the masculinity. Mm-hmm that was sort of taken away from right. Japan right. and making Japan a country that men can be proud of mm-hmm. again. I so, mean, I have another quote from Prime Minister mm-hmm. Hashimoto Ryotaro, and it says, men are supposed to be responsible for protecting newborn babies, women, and aged mothers. Men in Japan, however, are utterly incapable of accomplishing this because they don't receive military training. So this, I, I've noticed this a lot, this language, um, and another... A, former colonel had said that uh, referring to the SDF in UN peacekeeping missions, he said, we are not a bunch of nurses, we are a military. Mm -hmm. So this highly gendered language. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Japanese pre-war military was obviously very gendered. Right. And uh, and so, you know, you can't quite understand the uh, system of comfort women, Mm -hmm. the sex slaves, uh, without putting that in perspective. And uh, in fact, I mean, you know, there's sort of a, an interesting, uh, if a bit creepy anecdote uh, in relation to uh, gender roles uh, mm-hmm. in pre-war time. Japan has a Ministry of Health, mm-hmm. you know, which exists even today. It was actually uh, established um, in the pre-war period during the war time upon request from the uh, Ministry of Army and Navy. Right, so mm-hmm. it's interesting, right? Because you hear the Ministry of yeah. Health, because it sounds good. I mean, health yeah. is good, uh, oh. but the Ministry of Health was actually established right. to groom young boys. Yeah, to exactly. Keep them so because because mm. the focus of the military at the time is to have strong soldiers, strong healthy soldiers, right, and healthy mothers, uh, right, who are right. going to give birth to healthy soldiers. Healthy soldiers, right. right, right. Right. So strong nation and strong military is only possible by having imposing health mm. on people, right? So exercise, mm, you know, right. and um, so national parks were set up right. and, you know, wow. legal 
medical breaks were instituted and I health was, control began. Yeah, it's crazy. That's the Ministry of Health, Labor, health, and Welfare. Yeah, right? what is today. It's today, uh, yeah. And, uh, but it has pre-war roots, mm, and it wow. began, uh, you know, with the prodding of the that's military. So and, uh, but that's how gendered it is, right? Mm-hmm. So the focus has been on the health of men. I, I was researching a while ago for mm-hmm. a, a different paper at school was um, Yasukinisha and, yeah. and the gendered yeah. divisions there. Um, and we probably will do an episode on Yasukuni at some point, so I won't get into like the nitty-gritty details, but mm-hmm. it's essentially a, sh- a shrine for people who don't know where soldiers and former war, war criminals are enshrined as gods. But what you do notice there, that there is some women enshrined at Yasukuni, but the women who are enshrined there are all nurses because mm-hmm. what was seen as valuable was someone who could take care of, of a soldier. Yeah. So again, going That's back to that point of health, yeah. I ne- but I didn't make that connection before. Right, right, right. So there's also this obsession with women as mothers. Yeah, mm. right? that's so true. And that has also come back with force in more recent years. Really? With the Well, because, you know, Japan has shrinking population. Yeah. Right. right. And yeah. uh, you can't really yeah. fight a war without having a good supply of right. soldiers. Yeah. Mm. And it just irritates me that the... I mean, not just the Prime Minister Abbott, but everyone, a lot a lot of politicians talk about, you know, encouraging women to, or families to reproduce, have more kids, but at the same time, they don't, well, f- what my understanding is that they don't really focus on making um, it uh, feasible for a woman to have a career right. while raising a child. Like, they don't have no. any support regarding that, yeah. so, yeah. yeah. Oh, also, one thing I wanted to talk about is the Abe administration also wants to bring back the rising sun flag, which mm. was used um, during World War II mm. and before. Mm. And I think it's strongly, very strongly associated with Imperial Japan. Mm. And um, I just wanted to bring right, that up and right, talk right, about right. it. So, um, well, the rising sun flag mm-hmm. uh, has been used by the you know, pre-war Japan a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's a symbol of Japanese imperialism right. even more than the ordinary, you know, flag of Japan, mm-hmm. which still, I mean, even that, uh, for some people of certain generation, really evokes militarist Japan. But the rising sun flag is even worse. Right. Uh, but it has continued to be used by the self-defense force troops in the post-war period as well. What the Abe government is trying to do now is to normalize that. Right. Because uh, there was a recent controversy between Japan and South Korea. The South Koreans uh, do not like the Japanese Navy, the, um, well, not really the Navy, but, you know, the maritime self-defense force troops uh, to have that flag when they, you know, uh, do exercise together with the Korean uh, or attend ceremonies uh, run by the South Koreans. And, uh, but the Japanese government is going out of its way to try to sort of normalize it, that it's okay, there's nothing to worry about. But yeah, it's, uh, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable right. for right reasons. Yeah, and it's interesting because they, I think they're, they published something on their... That's right, um, on homepage. On their homepage yeah. saying it was used from, yeah, pre-war time, which is true, but yeah, they completely um, kind of reject the fact does, they don't really look at the fact that it's strongly co- uh, associated with Actually, yeah, no, it's imperialism. Interesting they talk about this. They say it's Japanese tradition, like yeah. the fishermen <laughs> used to use yeah. it and, you know, all that sort of thing. And actually, other countries also have similar versions or, right. you know, modified versions of Rising Sun Flag. And yet they fail to mention that it was widely used during wartime Japan. Yeah, right. <laughs> and... Uh, Let's maybe talk about the upper house elections that happened on July yeah. 21st. So, um, some key policy areas amongst the competing parties were like the pension system, where the money is going, welfare, obviously the revision or non-revision of Article 9 of the Constitution, consumer tax, nuclear energy, and whatnot. And um, so... The upper house requires two-thirds of its members to vote for, uh, sorry, um, to call a referendum. To call a referendum, right? Yeah. And that was what the LDP and yeah. its allies were um, trying to do. Yeah, that's right. So um, to sort of provide a mm-hmm. bit of context, um, 
there is an article, Article 96 of the Japanese Constitution, lays out the condition for the revision of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. right? So in order for the Japanese Constitution to be revised, uh, a proposal needs to be approved by two-third majority of both houses of parliament, mm -hmm. so both the lower house and the upper the house, house. Yeah. and then there will be a national referendum. Right. And in the national referendum, a simple majority would suffice. Mm -hmm. And so the Abe government, since three years ago, had a two-third majority in upper house as well. It has a solid two-third majority in the lower house also. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the election that just happened on July 21st, uh, one of the biggest sort of you know, question was whether Abe would be able to maintain a two-third majority in the upper house as well mm -hmm. so that he can keep the option of calling a referendum mm -hmm. when he thinks the timing is right. Mm -hmm. And obviously for those of us who are opposed to the idea, we're trying very hard not to let Abe to win uh, the two-third majority again in the upper house. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, the constitution was one of the issues, mm -hmm. and Abe, during the campaign, time and again said that this election is about him getting an approval for the revision of the constitution. But actually, I mean, interestingly, the opposition parties were the ones who said that, well, this is not really about the constitution, because people don't really care about the constitution yeah. that much. Mm -hmm. You know, the popular interest is much more to do with the economy, yeah. you know, with the pension system, right. mm -hmm. with the consumption tax increase, mm -hmm. right. you know, sort of bread and butter issues. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, you know, it was hard to have a debate, really, because Abe kept on saying, oh, we need to revise the constitution, mm. right. blah, blah, blah. And then the opposition party said, well, no, really, we need to sort of, you know, address the Other problems. Issues. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And... Uh, the opinion polls also indicate very clearly that the people don't think this is the right timing to change the constitution. Mm. Actually, one of the polls that was taken right after the upper house election, asking what uh, they want the Abe government to focus on, the number one priority, uh, what should be, uh, the revision of the constitution only was uh, chosen by 3% wow. of the respondents. 3%, 3 only 3%. Percent. You know, the great bulk of people were talking about social security. Mm -hmm. Right. Such as pension. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's what people are worried about, all the consumption tax increase, education. Right. Yeah. Right. Things that affect their everyday life exactly. more so. Yeah. yeah. So as a professor, you, you're obviously teaching young students yeah. all the time. Um, I know that this... this Upper House election had a pretty low turnout for mm. young voters, yeah. mm. but how how important do you find this topic to be uh, this topic as in revision of constitution uh, of the constitution to be to the younger generation? I know that most um, from what I read from an article that most younger people do lean right; they do mm -hmm. uh, want to vote for Abe, but it, it has less to do what I read with mm -hmm. the constitution and more to do with the economy as well. Yeah. Building on what you said, yeah. but where where does this factor in with young people? Are they aware of it? What's what's mm. is it? Does it seem important to them? Right. So the turnout was uh, has been declining mm -hmm. uh, to a critical level in the recent years, and this time it was uh, the second lowest in history, mm. uh, with only forty eight point eight percent of people voting uh, at all. Right? right. So more than half of the Japanese voters abstained, mm. which is catastrophic. Yeah. And uh, the turnout is even low, lower with the younger people. Mm -hmm. And um, no, but as Farin said, um, most young people, and in fact, you know, people of all generation, but particularly young people, uh, are not particularly interested in Article Nine, even if they are leaning on Abe. Uh, they are more interested in getting jobs right. and having an economy that works. Right. And uh, for now, Jap Japanese economy is is doing okay. Um, because, of course, you know, the Olympics is, are right. coming next year right. and uh, the government is, you know, using all the resources it mm -hmm. has to try to sort of keep the economy at, the, at a certain level. Uh, critics argue that this is not sustainable at some point, mm. you know, pumping in so much money into uh, the uh, economy and also uh, into the stock market mm. because there's a lot of public money that is invested in the stock market. Mm, right. So it's sort of a bubble economy mm -hmm. sponsored by the Japanese government mm -hmm. and at some point they have to pull back the money, right? And then that might lead to the collapse of the bubble so uh, the consequences can be quite dire. So 
this begs the question, if young people aren't particularly interested in, in Article 9, if even old people, because you said, the, you know, 47% total voted, who who really is backing this? Is it just right-wing groups? Yeah. And if it's not so popular... Oh, sorry, Erica. No, no, I was going to go say, um, is it likely to happen at all? Like, it, should this be something that actually has as much attention as it does? Yeah, because I feel like people who talk about um, the revision of Article 9 are, well, at, at least, like, on uh, public opinion that I personally see is just people who are against it. And I feel like it's very, very hard to he- hear or find people who are for it. So, yeah, what do you think yeah. about that? Well, I mean, um, it's not just in Japan. I think it's also seen in the U.S. and many other countries. But mm-hmm. people who are in favor of sort of beefing up the military uh, are also often driven by fear, mm-hmm. you know, real or imagined. Right. Right. Fear of terrorists, fear of foreign forces in the Japanese context, fear of rising China mm-hmm. or North Korean missile or nuclear missile development. Mm-hmm. And so there are people who are sort of, you know, very afraid. And um, it is also true that in, you know, East Asia, you know, China is becoming more and more powerful. And of course, it's also sort of, you know, building up militarily. And um, North Korea is also quite un- unpredictable at times, and you know it's still developing missile capabilities uh, at least short range. So um, I guess you know there is a, uh, a segment of the Japanese society, rightly or wrongly, uh, very afraid. Uh, right. But um, uh, and much of it, of course, is created also by the perception, right? So. Sometimes the government sort of, you know, popping up fears in people mm-hmm. or at other times, you know, sort of putting a break on it. Uh, the media playing a role also in finding fear. Right. Um, just like in the U.S., you know, people become gun owners because they're afraid, even though that's not necessarily making the society any safer. Uh, but there are, you know, people in Japan who are also afraid in that kind of way too. I think a lot of people vote for the LDP not necessarily because they agree with everything mm-hmm. but just because um, they don't want the status quo to change they don't want right. their lifestyle and everyday you know life yeah. to change yeah. so what would you like to say to people sure. like that right so um, well uh, particularly young people right because um, Abe government has been in place for already six years and a half mm-hmm. and so you know, people who are currently in college, for example, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people only know Abe government. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have a bit of a memory of what preceded Abe government, which was the, you know, opposition, mm-hmm. uh, today's opposition in power. Mm-hmm. But Abe, since he took office, he continues to say that, oh, it was catastrophic when the opposition was in power. Everything went wrong. And it's true that, you know, during the time when the today's opposition party was in power, before Abe came back to power, you know, there was also the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear power accident, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it was hard time. Yeah. And uh, so Abe says, oh, it was all wrong, but I fixed it all. And even though that's not really true, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, uh, I think for the younger people in particular, if they don't really remember what preceded our government, and all they hear is that it was horrible, and uh, there's no real way in which they can compare the Abe government to any other government. And so they think that it's kind of normal. And um, uh, so I think that's having an impact. You can also see that, to put things the other way around, the older voters tend to be much less gullible, and they tend to be much less trusting of Abe government because uh, they know that things were not as bad as it is today. So um, I had a question going back to revision of Article 9. Sorry, I'm jumping around a bit. But how do countries like Korea, China, other Asian countries, even America, since America has a military presence here, how are they reacting um, to this growing militarism? Is it something, particularly Korea, is it something that they're anxious about? You said that the rising, the military rising flag thing, they don't like. But even the talks in general, is this something that 
you have seen Koreans have a backlash to, or the Korean government? Yeah, it's uh, it's fairly complicated because, of course, you know the remilitarization of Japan, including the remilitarization in recent years, the lifting of the ban on collective self-defense, for example, or Abe's ambition to revise Article Nine. You know, these projects have been also supported and at times promoted by the U.S. government as well. Right. Right, because the U.S. government wants to continue to be the mainstay of order in East Asia, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really want to pay for all of it. Right. And increasingly, it wants other countries that are allied to the United States, like Japan, like South Korea, to be kind of subsidiaries of the American military. So the U.S. government, you know, in the past decades have been pushing Japan to, you know, beef up its uh, military mm-hmm. so that it can let Japan do more mm-hmm. uh, while still integrated and you know, increasingly integrated uh, under American command. That way, America doesn't have to pay for it and right. the American soldiers don't need to risk their lives. Mm-hmm. They can increasingly substitute that with the Japanese so in that sense, the U.S. Uh, establishment has been generally in favor mm-hmm. of remilitarizing Japan. South Korea has a sort of a, an ambiguous position to this, right? Okay. Because on the one hand, the civil society in South Korea, of course, they are afraid of Japan. Right. You know, more they ma- are more sometimes, legacy. Yeah, exactly. Skeptical of Japanese, you know, uh, apologies or mm-hmm, non-apologies mm-hmm. and whether Japan has really changed. And uh, so... Um, they're generally suspicious. Uh, the conservative politicians in South Korea uh, are less suspicious and because they are similarly uh, sort of relying on the United States to you know, strengthen the military in South Korea and to work as a check on North Korea and China and so forth. Mm-hmm. So they share a vision together. Uh, but, of course, the liberal uh, politicians who are today in power in South Korea they want to sort of, you know, bring peace to the Korean Peninsula, you know, uh, hopefully even sign a peace treaty with North Korea, mm-hmm. and therefore they won't be welcoming Japan's remilitarization, which would stimulate North Korea in a wrong way. Um, what do you think is really the best solution uh, that civil society can take uh, to curb their fears against, like, growing militarism? Would you say it's potentially further integration of the SDF into international organi- like peacekeeping missions like the UN? Is it like total isolation? Is it more youth engagement in politics? Like wh- where do you see this going in the future? Yeah. Well, um, I think there are several things. I mean, one reason why the neighboring countries are afraid of Japan and particularly afraid of the you know, sort of what is seen as rising nationalism mm-hmm. and perhaps even militarism in Japan, uh, because Japan is seen as a country in collective amnesia mm-hmm. of the wartime past. Right. You know, if the Japanese were much more sincere and knowledgeable about mm-hmm. the wartime, you know, uh, crimes and atrocities committed mm-hmm. by the, their ancestors, uh, I think the neighboring countries' view on Japan would be very different. Right. 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 And uh what you see, you know, in Europe for example, uh, you know, I don't think people, you know, countries around Germany today are afraid that Germany would become militaristic again or right. will be taken over mm-hmm. by Nazis, right? And uh but Japan doesn't enjoy the same reputation because of the difference in the attitude mm-hmm. uh vis a vis the wartime past. So I think, you know, learning more about history mm-hmm. and uh you know, owning the responsibility for the Japanese uh, crimes uh, and abuses committed, uh, I think would be a must for Japan to become a more credible and trusted uh, neighbor in the Asian context. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing I think is that um, I think people need to be more realistic. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm opposed to Japan, uh, you know, getting remilitarized Mm -hmm. is actually very simple. Because um, and it doesn't. It's not rocket science. I mean, you can just think about it, and I think you'll get it very quickly. Japan is an island country, mm-hmm. you know, quite small, right? Yeah. And um, 
it has 40, 54 nuclear reactors lined up in the coastline. Right. right including the one that blew up in Fukushima yeah. after yeah, the yeah. earthquake and tsunami. And uh, it has one-tenth of China's population. Mm-hmm. And uh, China's GDP has surpassed Japan's several years ago. Mm-hmm. And now it's more than doubled Japan's. Mm-hmm. And very soon it will be triple of Japan's. Um, Japan's demographics are declining, right? Aging society, fewer people. Uh, and uh, its economy at this pace is going to continue to shrink because there's no country on earth that grew, you know, that was able to grow the economy while having population decline. That just not doesn't happen. Right. And so the idea that Japan can defend itself militarily is sheer fantasy. Right. right? It's never talked about in these discussions, yeah. right? Because, um, I mean, how much money can you spend to be able to sustain that level? Right? Yeah. And, um, you know, North Korea doesn't really need to develop nuclear, you know, uh, missile, even though it has. Because, you know, why don't aim at one of those nuclear reactors? You know, so many of them there. All right. And so, and, you know, Japan is so close to the Asian continent. So it's in the range of the missiles that can be reached very easily everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not, you know, Washington, D.C. It's not California. Right. And so... The idea that you can actually defend Japan militarily is is uh, is a fantasy. Japan, geographically, I think, is destined to try to seek peace diplomatically. Otherwise, it's not going to work. I'm not saying that this is time for Japan to get disarmed immediately, right? Because, you know, that would destabilize the region greatly. But Japan, I think, is destined to try to stick to Article Nine and try to work things out diplomatically and build goodwill. I never really that thought about it That was a very like rational that. argument. Yeah. Right? I've never heard it put that way. Yeah. Right. So I think people do need to think about these terms realistically um, because I don't think it's sustainable. I mean, you can't pay for education. You can't pay for pension, you know, if you continue to increase spending in the military. Mm-hmm. And you, there's no way you will be able to outspend the Chinese. Right. Mm-hmm. That's just not no possible. No way, yeah. So I think, you know, we need to have a cool head and realize that, you know, you, you need to sort of measure what you can realistically do. And, um, uh, you know, if you're going to invest, I think, you know, you're going to need to invest in having good diplomats yeah. <laughs> and friendly relationships okay. with the other countries right. and uh, try to, you know, secure peace and protect the people that way. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the idea that you can defend through force is just not realistic to me. That's so true. And thank you for that. And I would like to end just on one, with one last question mm-hmm. about um, the lack of political activism in uh, Japanese civil society. I saw that in the past um, upper house elections. It made me realize how much it is difficult to find information about mm. specific policy like details because the media I feel like doesn't really cover yeah. or discuss yeah. the like the nitty-gritty of mm-hmm. all the policies mm-hmm. um and I feel like it's just more political focus on political drama um yeah. and so even though you know every, I think everyone living in Japan you get this newspaper sent home before the elections yeah. and it has these you know um uh, information very very rough um, notes about yeah, yeah about um, just the policies but they they don't go into any detail um, I think it's up to the parties what they want to write yeah exactly and yeah so what do you think about this like lack of um, political activism but also just the lack of kind of difficulty to find mm. information mm. Um, for elections because even as a rather relatively politically active citizen, mm-hmm. I think for me it's it was still very, very hard to find um, substantial information. Right, right. No, I think that's why you started your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, we need to sort of try to reach to people who are uh, not necessarily, you know, having good access to, mm-hmm. you know, the information they need. Yeah. Uh, we need to make use of social media. 
we need to also scold and prod the established media mm-hmm. to change too. Right. Because that's also very important. But I think, um, you know, it's increasingly important for citizens and youth all over the world to also become media themselves, mm-hmm. right? Because otherwise you can't find the information you want and you can't convey the information you want to convey and spread. And so we all do what we can. And um, there's no magical sort of formula to try mm-hmm. to change things overnight. Uh, but I'm not entirely pessimistic either because, uh, you know, even though people say that the youth today are apolitical or even conservative, I think it's really generalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't take a whole generation to change society, actually. Mm. I mean, you know, uh, we are individually, you know, of course, not that strong politically, but I think we are also not entirely powerless. Mm-hmm. And um, the youth have uh, a privileged power because, um, I mean, people like me, I mean, I'm almost 50, but I used to be young too. <laughs> so <laughs> when young people are active, it really touches my heart in a yeah. different way. And uh, I think, you know, the youth, the uh, women who are uh, voicing their views and challenging taboos, I think they are already changing society. I mean, what is frustrating is that changing society is hard enough. Changing politics is even harder. Right. right. There's a time lag. Because mm. right? mm. society might true. change, but then politics is sort of protected through the electoral rules and parties and mm-hmm. conventions, and mm-hmm. so they are slower to change. Mm-hmm. So the breakthrough is not really coming, but I think society is gradually changing. I mean, even Japan, you know, even though there's real generational divide in a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, the young people, I mean, you know, I, I sort of uh, I admire, you know, people in your age, you're much more gender conscious, you know, you're not afraid of addressing LGBT issues, you know, you are very concerned about human rights, you know, xenophobia, racism, uh, in a way that, you know, all the generations aren't, uh, and certainly not in at your age. And so I think, you know, we start to see these changes um, already at the societal level. Mm-hmm. And it will be a bit frustrating because it's not going to lead to a political breakthrough immediately. Mm-hmm. Right, it is frustrating. But the pressure but, yeah. is mounting, and right. eventually it's going to sort of lead to a change. And uh, I think that's the only way things have been changing, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think um, I'm, I'm very optimistic in the sense that they, you know, some youth, people mm-hmm. like you, are sort of you know, trying to reach uh, out information and learn things and talk about things and share information. Uh, I think you know, the future is probably bright. I mean, let's hope that, you know, we meet again you know, <laughs> 10 years down the road and we reminisce and we say, oh, that was the idea, that was the worst time, and since things have changed. It's entirely yeah. possible, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah. for joining us, Professor Naka. Thank I know, you so much. I feel yeah. like we took your class yeah. two years ago, but I still, like, I, and we obviously we discussed some yeah, of this so. during your class, but I'm still sitting here yeah. learning yeah. new yeah, stuff. Yeah, so much. Yeah, and it, that's how we met, too. Yeah, right, actually, right, 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 right. we met yeah. in your yeah, class. Sure. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, that's thank nice. you very much. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Um, thank you everyone for listening and if you want to follow us on social media please follow at Super Smash Hose Podcast on Instagram yeah and see you yeah. next time thank, thank you, you.